welcome again to another episode of Pressing On Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Senders, and today uh, we are probably going to have a pretty short one comparatively to some of the other ones we've done, but today we're going to be going over the latter portion of Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to be um, addressing the notion that the Bible is just a book of stories. Uh, this is a common uh, common critique of the Bible that, you know, it's just a bunch of fanciful stories that can't be corroborated. And it's very similar to other ancient books. And usually this is, uh, usually this is in relation to the creation epic. Usually it's talking about, um, the early portions of Genesis. And so I just want to take a look at that and respond to this often repeated criticism. Uh, I think for Christians, sometimes it's real easy to hear things like that and just kind of write it off and, you know, oh, you know, a lot of people say things like this. But I think that um, criticisms like this really need to be given a little bit more um, weight than we usually give them. And I think that the reason that we don't give criticisms like this the weight that we should is because we don't recognize how many people really and truly have not read the Bible and therefore just simply don't know what's in it. They they say things like this. They say, you know, they give critiques like the Bible is just a bunch of stories or, you know, it's just a mythology or something like that because in reality, they have no idea what's in it. They have never picked it up to read it. They have no idea about the content. And what they think of the Bible is really that it's a 3,000-page book that consists of just Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Um, and I'm being very serious about that. I, I, you know, quite honestly, I don't think that the, especially young people who make this kind of a claim that it's just a fanciful book, they really have no idea what it is that's inside the book, and they have no idea um, about the historicity of the things that are being stated in the book and what kind of content it is. And so they think of it as a book of stories or a book of mythological epics rather than thinking of it as narrative, that it's actually historical narrative for much of its, um, much of its length. And so today I want to look at Genesis chapter 4. And the reason I picked Genesis chapter 4 is because of the ties to the creation epic and to um, show that this, this historical narrative that sounds very much like history, and I want to point out some certain some certain things that might get glossed over if you're not thinking about it from this perspective, but um, how this historical narrative ties to what uh, you know an unsaved person or a a, a quote unquote Christian who's uh, not conservative in their understanding of Scripture uh, might uh, what they might view as being a myth or, you know, mythological or just made up or something like that. Um, and so what I want to show is how these historical narratives cannot be divorced from the more mythological, the, the more epic portions of scripture, particularly in the early portions of Genesis. Uh, the second reason that I want to go to Genesis is because, like I said, I think a lot of non-Christians have this idea of the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, as being this kind of one giant book just about the creation of the world, and it's all a bunch of miracles and um, 
you know, mythological kind of things that are outside of our realm of experience. And they don't recognize that the, um, the pieces that are in it that are historical actually have to do with the parts that are more mythological or more super experiential, uh, supernatural. Um, and so I want to address Genesis chapter 4 because it sits in a very nice place there where it's tied to the creation story but is also very historical in the way that it's been written. And so we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 4 and I want to start at Genesis 4.17. So if you can follow along with me in your Bibles or if you don't have Bible um, available to you, just listen to it and I'm going to read right through this. So Genesis 4.17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the first was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, most people, I think they get to this kind of a portion and they just go, oh yeah, there's that portion on Lamech and there's a bunch of weird names in there and you know, they just kind of skip over it and you know, maybe talk about how uh, the, the, the necessity or the importance of these um, these genealogies in regards to the other genealogies that are found in, uh, in Genesis. But what I want to call attention to is just the simple fact that this narrative actually even exists in the text. Uh, now, when we're looking for marks of authenticity within narratives like this, what we're looking for is things that stand out, things that someone who didn't have first-hand knowledge of this information would have no way of knowing. So, for instance, you go to um, certain portions of the New Testament and you look at what they say about weather patterns, what they say about was the grass green there, uh, the, the, port the uh, uh, certain particularities about certain areas that would have been known to people who were reading it where they could actually go and verify this is what this place looks like. Um, you know, in the New Testament, that's very important because uh, when we see things like that in the writings of the apostles, we know that the apostles were actually at those places and that they weren't just made up stories that were written by, you know, perhaps a Jew that was living in Alexandria. We look at the names that were used in the area and we know that the names were Judean. They were not Alexandrian or they weren't um, Babylonian or something like that. We can verify that these were common names of people at that time. So things like that are important to uh, 
verify that the testimony that's being given or that the narrative that's being given is true. And one of the things that we see here in Genesis 4.17 are specificities um, about uh, these people, um, about uh, Lamech in particular, that stand out, the, that ask the question of the reader, why is this here? Because when it comes to Lamech, you know, we could, and let's be honest with ourselves, and you know, I don't want to take away from Scripture, obviously, and I hope no one interprets this, me as saying this, but if we removed this section of Scripture, 417 through uh, 424, would we lose any of the story here? No, of course we wouldn't. We, would, we wouldn't lose any importance in the narrative of Genesis. It really wouldn't subtract anything, and this portion of Scripture doesn't really add anything aside from giving us um, aside from giving us the generations of the line of Cain. But there's no narrative advancement by adding this section in. So just from that particular point, um, we know that this is uh, that that this has a certain amount of veracity to it because unless someone had knowledge that this was actually true and that these things had actually happened and that as we're going to be looking at Lamech in particular, that Lamech was an actual person, um, there's no reason to include this in here. And in terms of our what it is that we're responding to, which is that uh, the Bible is just a book of myths and it's just a book of stories, this does not, this is um, the exact opposite of mythological. It's got people giving birth to other people. It's got um, specific names in specific places, uh, which uh, is actually going to precede that in verse 415 and verse 416. Um, we have the book of, uh, we have uh, certain places that are being named. And so it, this has a veracity and authenticity to it simply because it provides us um, specificities that don't add to the text and yet are given nonetheless simply because, to the author anyway, these things were real. These things need to be recorded down because they were part of actual history. And if the, if the purpose of the author, which I think is a, a good assumption that the purpose of the author was to record history, then this needs to be added in here. So um, right away, we can just see that uh, this portion of Scripture adds authenticity to the narrative. And uh, as we go through this, we'll see that it adds authenticity to the narrative of the creation epic, not just that this portion actually happened. So uh, our person that we're focusing on here is Lamech. Lamech is the great, great, great grandson to Cain, which is important because uh, if, once again, going back to this, uh, uh, this criticism that the, the uh, goings on, the history of Genesis 1 through the beginning of uh, uh, the, the first portion of Genesis 4 was just all story that, uh, you know, God never created. It's just mythology. Uh, there was no serpent. Adam and Eve were, Adam and Eve are not creations of God. They're just part of the evolutionary chain. Um, if that was true, 
we're we're looking at something that you know in, in terms of Lamech, he's very very close to this narrative. There are specificities about Lamech that necessitate the reality of the the um, the narrative about the Garden of Eden, and we have to ask the question of where these things came from. In which case, for all intents and purposes, it appears that Lamech believes that God put a curse on Cain, that it was God. And how would he have gotten that? Well, because it's his family line, so he's got a tradition that's being passed down through his family, and he believes the tradition, and he's close enough in time to not question it. Not to mention that there are things about what happened to Cain that are that if Cain is this evil person, this contemptuous person, why would Cain be truthful about the story and why would Lamech relate the truth of the Cain story rather than changing it to appear that Cain is of a higher standard because it is his, it is his great-great-great-grandfather. So wouldn't you want to make your own family look better? Wouldn't it, you want to make him look more aloof, more, um, more kingly, so to speak, rather than preserving the fact that your great-great-great-grandfather was a murderer? You know, these are questions that we have to ask of this text in particular because the text in particular does not show us any kind of reason to doubt the narratives that came before. So uh, let's look at some of the specificities that uh, give us reason to think that this is historical, that this actually happened. Um, now, the first part is, so starting here with, uh, with Lamech in verse 419, it's important to notice that, that the author includes that Lamech took to himself two wives. Now, if you look at the rest of the, look at verse 418, and it just says, to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of uh, Mehujael, dot, dot, dot. All we have is father to son, father to son, father to son. It's just a direct line. Could the author, if the important, uh, if the important aspect of the narrative was to simply state that Methushael was the father of Lamech, and then Lamech was the father of someone else who is going to um, then carry on the line and become the father of another person, then why give us this piece of information that Lamech took two wives? We don't need to know that um, Lamech's first wife had other sons. We don't need to know that either one of Lamech's wives had sons at all because actually the, um, uh, the genealogy just stops right there. No, no one is given as the, at least in this chapter, no one is given as the son of any of Lamech's sons. So why present this piece of information? The most reasonable and most logical reason for why this piece of information is given to us is because it's important that Lamech took two wives instead of just one wife. 
why in the world would you put something like that if it was a normal occurrence? It's because prior to this, we have no reason to believe that anyone took anything other than one wife. We have Adam has Eve. We have Cain has his wife. It says in verse 417, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. And then each one of the, each one of the uh, um, uh, grandsons of Cain then just continues along the line and nothing special is said about them. But Lamech is special. Lamech has two wives. So what we can uh, what we can see from this is that there's a certain, um, there's something to say about humanity at this point of time, which is that the normal position, the according to this narrative, the normal, uh, the the normal function of hum of humanity was for one man to have one wife, and Lamech is special because he stepped outside of that tradition and he took two wives. And this adds to the veracity of the text because since because there's no reason to give this to give this information there's not really any information any reason to give this information other than that the author wants to draw attention to this point. This is a strange point. He's kind of looking at this and saying, "Take note. Lamech stepped away from tradition. He had two wives, not just one wife." Now, Lamech was also very, um, very special in that his, uh, his sons were gifted. And we have, we see the beginning of certain crafts, um, uh, shepherding, uh, music, uh, tools, probably uh, tools and implements would probably also include weapons, um, especially because of Lamech's little speech here. Uh, but uh, getting down to this, uh, well, yeah, so his sons are given special importance and to show that his line is important and that he's, he's probably responsible for passing down the knowledge of certain, uh, certain guilds or certain, tech, you know, certain technical aspects of human ingenuity, uh, which also, of course, adds then to the veracity of the text, which is that these are not gods being passed down, you know, these things aren't being passed down by gods to people. We don't have superpowers being used here. We don't have um, people who are extraordinarily skilled. We just have normal people that specialized in certain areas of um, technological progress, and they were the first ones or the people to whom uh, specificity was given of those special, um, special gifts those special, uh, special trades. Now, getting on to um, Lamech's speech here, it, what's important about the speech is these last four lines in 23 and 24. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. The importance of these four lines here is that Cain, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Lamech is uh, validating the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, not only is he validating it, but he's validating uh, Cain as a member of his household. He's validating Cain as, as his grandfather. And not only that, but he's not adding anything to the story or subtracting anything to the story. 
but he's taking the story of Cain as being uh, uh, as be being truthful as it is passed down in Genesis in the uh, first part of Genesis chapter four. Now, the interesting part here too also is the verifying of the what we would recognize as being the supernatural elements of the beginning of Genesis chapter four, the the Cain and Abel narrative, which is that by Lamech saying, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, who was Cain avenged by? He was avenged by God. So let's go back there. Um, Genesis, we'll start at uh, Genesis 4, 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So uh, Cain's, uh, the uh, avenging of Cain is coming at the hand of God himself. Now, if one of the, given that one of the special points of Lamech is his arrogance, because this, this last line here says, then Lamech 77-fold. What Lamech is essentially saying is that God will be the avenger of Cain and will only avenge him sevenfold. I, Lamech, am responsible for my own revenge, and I will, reven I will avenge myself. 77-fold, I will do greater than what God would do for Cain. And of course, Lamech is completely misunderstanding God's point, which is that if someone murders Cain, they will have to deal with God, and God's, uh, God's revenge will be a perfect revenge in that it will, he will be avenged seven times, a perfect number. Lamech takes that as a quantity and multiplies the quantity um, 11 times and says that I will revenge myself, I will avenge myself 77-fold. So there's a great deal of arrogance here, which is that in one, he took, um, this boy struck him, and instead of going to the Lord for, for revenge, instead of crying out to God to take care of this, he reacts on his own and he kills this man. Um, and then Lamech says that, you know, because I've killed someone, as my great-great-great-great-grandfather had also killed someone, um, I am going to take the avenging into my own hands. So there's a great deal of um, a, a great deal of arrogance here in the hands of Lamech, and he doesn't he doesn't change in, in his arrogance. He doesn't change the fact of Cain's narrative, which is one that God was the avenger, two the amount of avenging that God would give on Cain, and three that. Cain was driven from the land that he and Abel lived in by God himself. So within the story of Lamech, what we have is, is the veracity of the text of um, uh, Genesis 4, 1 through, um, uh, well, Genesis 4 in, 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 in its entirety, but particularly Genesis 4, 1 through 17, um, and in doing so, uh, also we have this little we have this little 
uh, tidbit about how uh, Cain went out and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. If Eden was just a made-up place, why would we know that Nod is east of it? If this is just a story, if this is just a mythology, why couldn't, uh, why would we know that Nod is east of Eden, and how would we know where Eden is? Um, and not only that, how would we verify that Eden, because we're told that it was guarded by two angels, wouldn't that be also verified that people from Nod, which we have no reason to believe that uh, Lamech moved from Nod at all, but rather that Nod was the place of Cain's people, and Cain's people lived there, and his his generations, his his grandsons, his sons and grandsons all continued to live there because this was a city that land that uh, Cain built. Um, there's no reason why people could not go to Eden and say, "Hey, we've heard these fantastic stories about the people there." I mean, even in ancient Greece, you know the um, the, the stories of the gods was that they lived on Mount Olympus and the Greek thinkers were smart enough to say, well, we've seen Mount Olympus and we know that those gods don't live there. We've never seen them. We've never had anything about that verified to us. There's no reason for us to believe them. And that's where the foundation of Greek, Greek philosophy is, which is that they were trying to reason their way through what, it, the, what is true about the world and trying to get away from the mythology that was of the common people. Um, it, and with Cain here, and with his generations, it would have been very simple for them to go out and verify the existence of Eden. And, you know, if Cain, assuming that since, uh, since Lamech knew the story of Cain killing Abel, presumably because of the things he says, then it would also, it's not too much further to go ahead and say that he also knew that Cain was the son of the one man who was created by God, that Adam was the son of God, and before Adam there was no other human beings. Not only that, but that uh, God created Adam and created him separate from the animals. Uh, this could all simply be verified by just traveling a little bit further west and going and seeing Eden and saying, uh, there's a couple of angels out there. We don't want to go over there. That place is a little frightening. Um, and, and so, uh, in, in not so many words, what Lamech is doing is verifying the entirety of Genesis up to this point. So, uh, like I said, this would be a very sh short podcast, and so I just want to draw attention to this very, very short passage of Scripture and just show how this idea that the Bible is just a book of stories, a book of fables, um, mythology, um, you know, this idea of a God creating everything out of nothing, that's just a bunch of nonsense. Well, that simply isn't true. And the reason that we know that it's not true is because of these um, more historical narratives that bear marks of true history. And yet, in order for them to be actually historical, they rely on those more, quote-unquote, mythological aspects of Genesis itself. In order for Lamech to be Lamech, in order for Lamech to say the things that he is said to have said, we have to know that Adam and Eve were created in the garden, that they were kicked out of the garden, that the garden's name was Eden, and that they had sons named Cain and Abel, and that Cain killed Abel. We have to presuppose all those things in order to take Lamech at his truth, at his 
at, at his word and to take the author of this section at his word that Lamech even existed. And yet, um, in terms of grammar, in terms of looking at the marks of the text, if we just take this, uh, take this text on its own, uh, you know, starting at like verse 17, if we just look at this text on its own, we have absolutely zero reason to believe that this is anything other than true history because of things like pointing out Lamech, pointing out the fact that Lamech had two wives, pointing out the fact that Lamech's sons were tradesmen, pointing out this pointless, I mean, why, why should we, why would the author um, include the speech by Lamech? There's no reason for it. It doesn't further the narrative at all. And if the purpose of Genesis is to just tell stories, to just give mythologies, to create these kind of fanciful stories that never really actually happened, why include the section on Lamech? Why include his speech? Why include any of the specific points about Lamech, like, for instance, the fact that he had two wives, unless this was a departure from the norm and that norm is a tradition handed down from Adam and Eve themselves. It makes no sense unless you take the, the Genesis narrative at face value. So I hope this gives you a little bit of ammunition to deal with uh, the argument that Genesis is just a bunch of stories and that it's uh, in the Bible uh, the Bible as a whole is just a bunch of stories also. Uh, but this gives you a little bit of ammunition to be able to march through this very in, seemingly insignificant passage and, re, and point out to someone that, hey, look, why would this be here unless it was actually true? And if what the, if what the, the criticizer is saying is true, then it makes no sense whatsoever for this to be here. So uh, I, I hope that this helped you out a little bit. And once again, you know, uh, check us out on Twitter at, at PressingOnPCast. And uh, visit our SoundCloud page, uh, www.soundcloud.com forward slash pressing on podcast. And uh, we're also found on iTunes at pressing on podcast. And thanks for listening and God bless.